No energy? Always fatigued? Has your got up and go got up and went? Primrose Leafs Pro Max 365 helps to produce natural energy, increase endurance and stamina, improve performance during exercise, reduce pain from fibromyalgia, and is excellent for cardiovascular support. A doctor-designed, deliciously berry-flavored formula that's great for ages 18 to 99. Order Pro Max 365 and get the natural energy you've always wanted. Call 844-376-0007. Refuel daily with Pro Max 365 and get your life back. Former NFL player Mike Gibson is here with us today to discuss the current mental health concerns of athletes and Damar Hamlin, who we all saw on national television collapse on the field that led to an unprecedented canceling of an NFL game. Mike Gibson earned a scholarship to Cal Berkeley for football and played two years before he got drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles in 2008. And he played a total of six years in the NFL with the Eagles, as well as the Seattle Seahawks and Arizona Cardinals. But after he retired, he became a sheriff's deputy, completing his credentials as class president, but abusing Oxycontin and Adderall the entire duration. And he was a deputy for under a year before getting asked to resign for his unhealthy habits. This setback turned him to becoming addicted to heroin and meth. But after going in and out of rehab six times in his last session, Mike made a breakthrough and has been sober for five years. And he has worked in treatment centers as an addiction counselor for the entire five years he has been sober. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome a man who has been to hell and back, former gridiron warrior in the NFL, Mike Gibson. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Dr. Bond, for having me. Hey, I, let's talk about uh, Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin for a moment. He collapsed on national television. How do you think the NFL handled the situation in regards to the players witnessing this tragedy on the field? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something like this is inevitable, right? With the size and speed and the, the, the strength of some of these players now, um, you know, I think the the NFL has done a good job with uh, player safety in terms of contact. I think the equipment companies have done a good job. Um, you know, I, I think it was maybe not in this fashion that me personally, I thought something like this would happen. Um, I thought somebody would take a blow to the head um, and then that's how we would see it. Right. Um, I definitely, we, we still don't know what exactly happened. They haven't gone public with whatever was it happened. We can only speculate at this point. Um, you know, and then from what it sounds like, it was the blow to the chest at the, perf- you know, or the most imperfect time um, in his case, right? Yeah. Uh, that caused him to collapse. You know, it's it's, it's a moment uh, for the league, I think, that was unprecedented. Um, us as players, we'd never seen anything like that happen. I didn't uh, think the blow was that bad, tell you the truth. No, it, to me, it looked like, a, you know, an average play, an average tackle. Um, there was nothing malicious about it. You know, in terms of T. Higgins, I think, you know, some of the fan majority of the fans understand it. But I think social media wise, I think some of the fans have, you know, gone after him personally for it. But, you know, I've seen much more malicious hits and I've seen people walk away from tougher hits, you know. Um, So in regard, so I think they handled it pretty well. I I think, you know, maybe uh, my, my personal opinion is the NFL. Uh, if the coaches didn't come together, if the players didn't come together and say, hey, we're not going to play this game, I think the NFL would have been perfectly happy keeping that game going. Yeah, because we, we've seen some massive hits. We've seen injuries on the field. Game's never been canceled. But I think the cancellation was due to the fact that his heart actually stopped 
and they had to resuscitate him there on the field. And I think that's where the shock came from, not only for the NFL, but millions of people watching the game because we've never seen anything like this happen before. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the, uh, well, armchair quarterbacks on social media uh, were, were very irate in the very beginning because I would follow the Twitter feeds and people were very irate, like, well, why aren't they canceling the game? What's taking them so long? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's probably a lot of protocol to go through because it is national television and there are totally. things that have to be taken care of. So, but I think they handle it pretty well because, you know, like we said, it's never happened before. Yeah. And, and who knows? I mean, we, it's never happened before, like you said. So we don't know what was going on, what phone conversations were being had. I mean, we've seen multiple players more so now than ever, now that there's been awareness brought to it. Uh, you know, guys getting hit down to a, taking a shot to the head, getting up, falling down. Um, there's, there's, we see that almost on a weekly basis at this point. So what's to say that this situation was any more different than the previous ones? Um, it looked like it was the same exact thing until he started the resuscitation. Um, yeah. Now, you know, of course, like you said earlier, um, the cause has not been released. Mm-hmm. You know, doctors are not even talking about the blow to the chest. There's been no medical uh, diagnosis given to the public at this point. We may hear something or we may not, but you being a former player and I've, and I've talked to others inside the NFL and there is this, I say internal tug of war when it comes to the concussion protocol, uh, Many players uh, feel the effects of concussions, but don't show it, so they're not sidelined. You know, it's only when someone gets a, a drastic hit to the head and they're laying on, laying on the field, then being brought up, then that's when the protocol starts. How do you think the NFL is actually handling the, the current concussion protocol? And what about the concussions these players are actually getting that no one notices? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few a few things regarding that, right? I mean, the NFL, I think, is doing a pretty good job. Um, a few things. So typically when you go to a team, you have to take this test on a computer. And um, it had back in junior college for me and then college and then the pros as well. So they can get a baseline, a generalized baseline of where you're at. Um, I mean, I remember taking those tests and purposely getting the wrong answers so that if I had a concussion, uh, then I could, if I was messed up and I got all the answers wrong, they'd be like, oh, he's normal. <laughs> right? So, wow. Again, for, for me, I was always the, at least I always felt like I was the, you know, 51st, 52nd, 53rd guy on the roster, right? Like I was always competing. I had one year where I started the whole season. Um, other than that, like I was always fighting for a spot. So, somebody like me, which is in reality 95% of every single NFL team, um, we're fighting for that roster spot. We have to play. So, you know, unfortunately, majority of the team is not into a position where they're the star quarterback of the team. So if he gets hurt, they're willing to sit on him for a few weeks and say, hey, go rest. You know, as, as somebody who, you know, was majority of my career was a backup uh, serviceable offensive lineman, you know, it's majority teams felt like they could get that from anybody. So in my opinion, I couldn't take um any time off uh you know so me getting a concussion just wasn't worth it and then like Tua is now 
he's getting uh, he's getting tagged as somebody who has concussion issues. So, and that's going to follow him for not only the rest of his career but the rest of his life. Well, I think uh, you know it's kind of like saying, okay, let's roll the tape here because mm-hmm. with with Tua, he you know he's had what has it been two concussion protocols already? He's had to go through. Yep. In one season. Yeah, that, that's documented. There, there's. They said the first one was a back injury, not a head injury. Yeah, so. that looked like a cover-up to me, but we'll just let, <laughs> yeah, let's just let that lie. But the thing is, you know, if, if so, and let you know, let's take quarterbacks for an example, because it's a different breed versus the running back. If a quarterback gets a concussion, it's usually a hit to the chest, falling backwards, and the concussion is not actually caused by the hit; it's caused by falling back and hitting the field yep. with your head. Yeah. Okay. I know Roger Staubach back in the day had three concussions based on that type of scenario mm-hmm. where a running back, and I've read medical research where a running back could have as many as 30, 40, many concussions in one game. Not that they actually feel the effect as they're playing, but it's that constant being hit by people like you hitting being hit by a linebacker over and over again, but they get up, they go on, they shake it off. They show no visible problems, but what have you seen from former players uh, that have retired from the NFL uh, knowing that these things have been going on? I mean, you know, I've heard, you know, I've been told with former players, some of them are having mental issues due to the constant tackling in the NFL throughout throughout their career. Yeah, I, I think that's a a big issue. I think the overall mental health of people that are retiring from the NFL in particular, right? So um, I'm sure that head injuries are contributing to it. Um, I mean, it's it's shown that CTE um, and mental health go hand in hand, right? And and there's just no way of showing it. Um, I know for me in particular, uh, my view of a concussion is when I get knocked out and everything's black, I don't remember anything, right? So I, there's been multiple times where I've been hit, shake the cobwebs out, and I don't know. I'd be like, in in today's terms, that would have been a concussion, you know, fall, you know, getting smacked, woo, you know, kind of have a weird, you know, sweat smell, you know, double vision, whatever. But there's a game to be played. You know, if, if for me, I'm not getting stretched off or carted off the field. To me, that's when I was playing, that was not a con- that's a concussion. You know, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it was just called, oh, man, I got my bell rung. Well, yeah, because most of like you said, you know, most people think a real concussion is, is you blacked out and then you maybe come to five to 10 seconds later. But concussions are going on over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember the, the I remember the day that Junior Seau took his own life based on the fact of his symptoms of CTE. And one of his very, very close friends was telling me the story about Junior. And when he left the NFL, you know, a lot of these problems started to creep up. You know, the mental health issues. Uh, Is the NFL doing anything for the former players when it comes to mental health issues possibly related to CTE? Not not that I'm aware of. Um, I know that the biggest thing that my family struggled with – 
at the time was when I was looking to get help for treatment. Um, at the time, uh, we had called my insurance company, called the NFLPA, saying they called and said, "Hey, Mike is struggling. Mike is struggling with substance abuse. He's struggling with mental health, um, depression, anxiety. We don't know what's going on, but we need help. Can you point us in the right direction?" They gave us. They gave my family zero resources. So zero. Now I understand that the NFL. Uh, has a has a um, a medical program, so to speak, for former players. But you but you have to be, and you you probably gonna know it way better than I do. Uh, that you have to be at a certain level to receive so much money a month to take care of whatever you endured through the NFL. And some players say or f- feel that they should be at the extreme side. Where, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, they could end up with a paycheck at over a hundred grand a month, but a lot of them are placed at a much lower tier, so the NFL doesn't have to give up the money. Yeah, well, they use their own independent doctors, so that's that's part of the issue, right? Um, so, I also know that it's really hard to get uh, to infiltrate the NFLPA per se, you know, um, because I've wanted to become a resource. I've wanted to go and speak to um, former players. I've wanted to speak to current players, you know, about the not only the risk of addiction, but the risk of mental health. Um, and I think that the preparation for life after football, I think is um, to say that they're trying to grow that is an understatement. I think that sometimes they do things as, as a courtesy, um, you know, send an email, you know, I, I get a text from the NFLPA every Friday for, you know, it's a motivating message, but in terms of trying to get a hold of somebody, um, trying to become a resource has been utterly difficult. Um, you know, and I've had multiple players, you know, not only contact me to get help, um, but just randomly call the facility that, uh, that I help run, uh, to get help themselves. Um, so I think that, uh, they definitely could be better at that. Is there a, is there a big problem of substance abuse in the NFL currently? Uh, and I, and when I say substance abuse, I'm talking about prescription meds, Mm -hmm. mostly for pain. So is there an abuse problem right now? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there was when I was playing, so I can only imagine that there is one now. Um, I think that, um, I think that there, I I can almost guarantee that there is, I mean, more so now look at, look at the world that we live in today. I mean, it's, it's, it's drugs are more prevalent now than what they were even when I was playing 10 years ago. Um, so it's, it's, I, I can only imagine. Well, let's talk about your, your past of substance abuse, because in your third year in the NFL, you suffered an injury and shortly after you got addicted to prescription painkillers. I'm stunned. You started at five milligrams of Vicodin. And then by the time you finished, you were at 300 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. Yeah. Mentally, what did you feel like? Yeah. I mean, at that point, like taking the 300 milligrams for basically my last two years and then into, you know, life after football, uh, I was taking that to feel well, you know, it wasn't like taking anything to, uh, to, to feel the effects of being high, you know, for me, it's, I'm taking, 
you know, five Oxycontin before I step on the field. And then I'm taking a few more at halftime uh, at that point, right? So that way I don't get sick. So that way my joint, my joints don't start hurting. Uh, what started as something that was generally there to help me um, and due to lack of education, not only from myself, um, but from what I hadn't learned when I was playing, you know, it's, it's uh, at the symposium that I went to, I heard a former player speak about his struggles with cocaine, right? But and not once had I heard um, about the education of, of opiate addiction. And so taking that, you know, for me, I took it during the course of a season um, because that's what I used to, I didn't, I opted to not have surgery on it. Why? Because if I had surgery, then my season could be over. Then next year I might not make the team. And then I, maybe I wouldn't have played the next three years. So, um, so well, that was my philosophy. There's a, okay. Let's step back a bit because that, that means that there is a, I don't want to call it a mental issue. And I don't mean mental issue in a negative connotation. <laughs> the thought process. So, so help us, Mike, all of us uh, listening and watching, walk us through what the mental aspect is of an NFL player knowing, okay, so he didn't, so he's not one of the privileged that gets a 10, $20 million a year contract. Okay. He could be on the lower end of the scale and he may be making upwards to maybe million, million and a half a season, but knowing he has to fight to keep his job every season. What is the mental strain of that? What does that do to a player? Well, I mean, for me, it was the reason why I ended up retiring. You know, I could have kept on using, you know, it wasn't because of drug addiction. It wasn't for, um, due to lack of talent. You know, I had opportunities afterwards to keep on playing, but I was so tired of having to fight, to fight, to fight. Even when you're a vested veteran, right? Like I was, um, if you're not, people understand, like if you're not on the active roster week one, then your salary isn't guaranteed. So what, what NFL teams do to help protect that and what they do is, and it happened to me in Seattle, um, it happened to me in Arizona as well. I only had two years where my money was guaranteed. Um, one of my years in Seattle and then my last year in Arizona. And so what they do is, okay, cool. You made the 53 man roster after training camp. And then you play the games on Sunday, right? So then they release you on Friday and then you got to clear waivers and then they sign you back on Monday. So at that point, they don't have to guarantee your salary for the year. They could, they, could, they could cut you week three and say, go home and you don't get paid another dime. So mentally, um, it was a big struggle for me personally. You know, I, I'm married. I didn't have any kids at the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in Arizona. Luckily, I'm born and raised in California. I had a home in California. But um, when I was in Philadelphia, for instance, and then – uh, ended up going to Seattle right after I was on practice squad for a week and they picked me up, you know, my wife had to drive a 35 foot U-Haul full of stuff, you know, across the country. And that's stressful for me, not knowing whether I'm going to be there next week or not, you know, it's, um, so it just gets taxing after a few years. It just made it so I can't get hurt. I can't complain about anything. Um, if I have a head injury, I, I can't say anything because what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, sit out a few weeks. They're going to sign somebody else. And then when you get healthy, they're going to release you. Um, so that way, because they don't have to pay you. 
that that is that is stress beyond measure right then and there and i mean and you know we all know it we we all watch it we see players literally the nfl just throws away our teams just literally throw away and the quarterback position is one of the worst where they could come in be there one year and they just chuck them off to the side when normally they would develop a player for two to three seasons before he even became a starter. Now they're shoving these kids to be a starter. And if you don't produce in the first year, you're gone. And they replace you with the next draft pick. And, you know, the NFL is a revolving door now. It's, I think it's worse than ever. But the mental aspect of, these, of every player dreaming of that day of being in the NFL not understanding what they're really going to be facing. But kind of walk us through a typical week. So let's say you have a big game on Sunday, you play the whole game, and right after the game's over, you're looking at an ice bath. How long does it take you to actually get rid of the pain from that game? Or do you ever? Yeah, I mean, it's they, they say your last day of uh, feeling good is the first day of training camp. So... <laughs> Typically from there, it's, you know, pretty downhill, you know, as you can imagine, training camp's very grueling, very tough. Um, I think that a lot of the injuries happening today are due to the lack of, uh, lack of practice time, um, the lack of contact during practice. I think a lot of injuries are happening that way now as well. Uh, but a typical week, so say you play on Sunday, the NFL only mandates that you have one day off. Um, so typically that's Tuesdays. Um, that they give you the mandatory day off. Um, they, they call it mandatory, but it's really, uh, you really have to go into the facility. So what they do after the game on Sunday, um, you know, you get treatment right after the game and then you show up on Monday, uh, you usually have a gym, you know, you have to work out at the gym for about an hour and then you usually get treatment afterwards, watch the game film, go back and get treatment. And then uh, Tuesday's the, the mandatory day off, right? Um, but the coaches, if you don't go in and watch film, if you're a guy like me, then, uh, you know, you're not considered a hard worker. So if you don't watch film, you don't go, uh, work out and you don't get treatment, you know, then, then you don't take your job seriously. And then, uh, by Wednesday, you're back in full pads. So you're back in full pads and you're hitting people again. And, uh, Thursday, you're typically just in shoulder pads and helmets. And then Friday, you're just in shells, which is basically helmets and then a small pad. Um, so there's not as much contact, and so then so you get come, back. So come the next Sunday, you're still in pain. Yeah, you know I can only imagine. You know some of these Thursday night football teams. Back when I was playing, I think it they only had a few Thursday night football games a year, and now every team has to go through a Thursday night. I couldn't imagine. And yeah, that, and that's why you see it in the quality play. Well, true because you have a game on Sunday. And then when the holidays hit, because that's when usually the, the Thursday nights are going to be hitting on television, you get a team playing on Sunday, they're playing on Thursday. And to tell you the truth, th let's say this season, I don't even remember anybody getting a bye week. No. Uh, I mean, they mandate that each team have one bye week per season, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, imagine being the away team in some of those Thursday night football games where you, you don't get home until – Typically, you don't get home because you leave right after the game. You know, once once the game's over, you know, you they give you a box, 
lunch or box dinner, I guess you'd call it. And then you go say hi to your family or friends. If any of them came to the game, you get on the bus, you drive straight to the airport, get on the tarmac, get on the plane. So, you know, you're typically not getting home till three or four in the morning, you know, on, on what is now uh, Monday morning. So, and then you need to rest and, you know, I'm sure they're in there watching film on Monday practice on Tuesday, Wednesday is going to be practice and a travel day if, if you're not playing at home. So it's a, it's a grueling schedule. Well, let me go back to your story here for a bit, because after you retired and here you on this massive amount of Oxycontin, mm-hmm. how in the world did you end up on heroin and meth? Uh, through the glorification when I, when I was in treatment, uh, you know, it, I, sh- I shouldn't, I can't blame it on other people right? Because I had my own mental health struggles going on. Um, I had a really big lack of identity, not knowing I'd always been since I was eight years old, I was Mike and I was known as a football player, right? And then the NFL is something that I wanted to do. From I was a young kid, my grandma said when I was uh, a child, they would turn off Monday Night Football, and I'd start crying. Um, So, you know, it's 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 something that I wanted to do. It's what uh, I feel like I was born to do or what I thought I was born to do. And, um, once that was taken away from me, I was always trying to find something to fill that void. And it was something that I struggled with. You know, I tried to find, um, a job with camaraderie and a team atmosphere or something to get my adrenaline going. It, it didn't fill that void. Um, and so basically, um, uh, what got me, go- what got me to treatment the first time was I had a job opportunity as uh, assistant, uh, player development at UC Berkeley where I went to college. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do this job if I'm using. And, uh, so I went to rehab for the first time and, um, learned about heroin and meth and, you know, didn't work on myself. I, I did it for other people. I did it cause my wife said, you need help. You need to go to treatment. And my family said the same thing. Um, and I did it. I spent 30 days there and maybe made it about a week after that. Um, and then the, the, just the struggles continued. And finally, what led me to get clean and sober, um, was desperation, you know, God, God finding my higher power, God, and the, uh, him showing me what humility is and, uh, humility is when you show up to treatment, I, I had already sold my house cause it was getting foreclosed on, you know, sold all my cars. Um, I, when I went to treatment last, I literally had two trash bags and, uh, couldn't get a bank account, uh, no vehicle, nothing. I had, I had good insurance. That's about all that I had. Well, I can tell you one thing, Mike, when you, when you hit rock bottom, the only direction to look is up Yeah. and he's the only one that has the answer. And, uh, sometimes we have to get there so we can find him. And then he's the one that pulls us out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some yeah. The, the desperation. So how are you doing now? Five years sober. Yeah. Doing great. Uh, I love it. I mean, it's, I, I'm able, I've been able to buy a home again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to be there for my family. Uh, I'm able to travel out of, you know, out of my comfort zone and be able to not have to worry about a secondary substance to, you know, to, to change the way that I feel is every day. Perfect. No. I mean, that's just, that's just life in general. Right. Um, but today I have the tools, um, 
I have a sponsor, I have meetings, I have other things that I do um, to help me keep me clean and sober. Uh, I have people that keep me accountable and I actually listen to those people. Um, you know, it's uh, your ego is not your amigo. And, and for me, my pride, and my ego kept me out there a long time. Uh, it kept me from asking for help, uh, which is the main thing. The second I started asking for help and surrendering, my life instantly got better. Well, how long did it take you? Well, let me ask you this, Mike, because, you know, I know players who have retired from the NFL. Mm -hmm. And you had just mentioned it uh, in this interview. When they retire, and I don't mean people like Joe Montana and people like that. A lot of players, when they retire from the NFL, their whole identity is tied into the fact that they were an NFL player and they don't know what their identity is once they retire. When did you find out that your identity was no longer the NFL and we know what your we know who your identity is now? Yeah, I mean it was um the people that I was around, it, it took it was really hard for me to get and to, and to understand. Um, you know, it was I went from Mike being the NFL player to Mike being the drug addict to Mike being in recovery, right? And then the whole time I thought I was Mike that was in the NFL. Um, and th that's just a part of my life at this point. Um, but it took a long time for me to realize that that's not who I am. Um, and, I, and like I said, I struggled with it. My sponsor had me write goodbye letters to the NFL um, goodbye letters to that mic in particular, um, and really finding and, and doing something that I genuinely love. And that's helping people that's helping people, um, get into treatment. So my first job was a tech, you know, it was making sure everybody gets up. I was making minimum wage on food stamps, you know, sweeping floors, cleaning bathrooms, um, and just being around, uh, in, in, in the, in the trenches is what we call it, which interestingly enough, right? Um, so being there with the individuals, helping them, talking to them, um, and just being somebody there to listen to, or to, to talk to and you to listen, right? Um, to uh, me doing community outreach, which is what I do now. And that's, you know, going around to other treatment centers, um, going to uh, other events to talk about the struggles with mental health and addiction in particular, um, you know, and then, it's what I love to do. You know, well, you know your your, well, your own personal test has become your testimony, and it's the testimonies that help to bring other uh, people who are dealing with mental health issues or dealing with addiction. It helps them to realize that there is hope and that there is a way out. Now, when you were in the NFL, were there any mental health or substance abuse resources available to players in the league? No, none. Zero. And it's still that way today. Yeah, I mean, I saw the other day with DeMar Hamlin, they had offered counseling for anybody affected by it in particular, um, which is great. Some people might deem it as, you know, being soft. But the one thing that I think that the general population fails to to recognize is, uh, and, and it's, it's happened to me too, is we're just individual humans. You know, people look at us like we're robots, we're machines, you know, it's something that's been drilled into our mind. You know, it's, hey, every single player has different emotions. 
um, has the same thoughts that a, a, an everyday person has, you know, it's, we're not special by any means. Gotcha. And what advice do you have for young players dreaming of entering, entering the NFL, as well as the young players who are entering the NFL, especially with the upcoming draft that already struggle with mental health issues? Yeah, I think it's important to have a general counselor, psychiatrist, psychologist, somebody to talk to that you can meet either face to face or, uh, you know, telehealth. So that's over zoom. Um, and somebody that you can talk to, you know, it, it's, it's, it's such an important and the, the beautiful part about, uh, a lot of these situations that are happening now regarding celebrities, um, or professional athletes is speaking about it. Right. And kind of the stigma getting brought down a little bit, but talk to people, you know, get, I have a top five and uh, I call it the top five. And what it is, is there's, there's five people that, um, I call them, and let them know, Hey, you're one of the, you're one of the people that's in my top five. If I call you or if I write 911 in a text message, that means I really need you. And the reason why I have five people is because they have lives too, right? Say I call person number one, uh, they don't have access to their phone at the time. And so I can't talk to them. So I call person number two and then for some reason, if they can't pick up, there's three, four, and five, right? Um, so have somebody there who's always going to be able to be there for you, um, who genuinely cares about you and your feelings. Um, you know, if, if you're already struggling with mental health, you know, like I said, get a psychologist, psychiatrist. Um, I think an outside one in particular. Um, there's plenty of them out there that are more than qualified. Um, I have my own theories about certain things that if you speak with somebody from an NFL team, it's probably not going to stay with that one person. It'll probably go somewhere with the, somebody else within the organization. That's my personal opinion. So um, that, that the teams are very unique. They have a way of finding things out. So in other words, mo probably all players, if there is a mental health issue that they are dealing with, probably 100% of the time they're going to keep it to themselves. Yes. Because yeah. their job, they know that they can be replaced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's my personal opinion. Um, that's been my experience. Um, yeah. Well, do, do any of the veteran players, the veteran players that you were around, mm -hmm. uh, were they ever uh, mentors to younger players in a positive way? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think when I was in Philadelphia, uh, my rookie year, we had, we had the guys that have been in the league 14, 15 years, and we, we didn't necessarily, uh, have the, I guess I wasn't there long enough to have somebody, uh, mentor me in particular. Um, you know, I was there for a year, but some of the other guys maybe had two or three conversations with them in particular. So, and I was in a room with them all year long. Uh, it, but you know, when I got to Seattle, it was a much different dynamic. Each team has their own dynamic, you know, th those individuals in Philadelphia, they'd been there forever. They had families, they had loved ones that they were around. They would show up to the office and then leave. And then when I got to Seattle, it was a young group. And so it was like, we were around each other more often. 
Um, and then, you know, same thing in Arizona. You know, very, it was a younger group. We did think more things together in particular. Um, so it was a little bit more uh, of an opportunity to be able to speak to them about certain things. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, it depends on the team. Well, what kind of advice do you have for current players going into the playoffs and dealing with a lot of stress? What kind of advice do you have for them or what type of exercises can they do? Yeah, I think, um, you know, box breathing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, box breathing. So it's four seconds inhale, four seconds hold, four seconds exhale, four seconds hold. And you just repeat it over and over again. Um, you know, I think meditation, What the rule that my wife and I had was when I get home, um, 15 minutes, I just need 15 minutes to myself. Um, and then I would come out of the room and the 15 minutes is just sitting there in peace and quiet. Uh, because the day is very chaotic, it's very stressful. And for me, messing up one play in practice, right, which is almost guaranteed to happen, right, that was what I thought about for the whole entire day. And so that 15 minutes uh, was a chance for me to decompress. And once that 15 minutes was up, it was, it, sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. But that 15 minutes was a chance for me just to sit with myself, try to clear my head. So, that, so, you, so I didn't bring my work home, and I didn't bring my home to work. So I think uh, that's important to not having the stress of everyday life in the facility carry over into your personal life. That's excellent advice, even for all of us who've never played in the NFL. I think that, uh, if, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a spouse that comes home from work, give them 15 minutes to decompress before you start laying out what happened during your day. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, now, nowadays it's, uh, you know, I, when my wife gets home, I try, I'm not perfect. You know, I'd set down my phone, turn off the TV. How was your day? You know, and, and invest 15 minutes into her and listen to her, uh, you know, whether I want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the great thing is, is that you're allowing that time for, them to get it all out or just to say, no, great day, and yep. uh, just celebrate a good day. Uh, mm -hmm. But for all of my viewers and listeners, Mike, where can they get help for mental health and addiction issues? Yeah, so uh, for me personally, uh, I'm on Instagram uh, at mike.gibson69. Um, I'm also on Facebook as well, so you can reach out to me um, and send a message to me personally. Uh, we also have uh, resources. Our website is mhcsandiego.com, which is for the Mental Health Center of San Diego. And then uh, healthylyliferecovery.com, which is our uh, substance abuse facility. So, um, but go to our website, give us a call, reach out to me personally, um, whatever. You know, pick up the phone, call somebody. You know, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, there's multiple people out there that do what I do for a living. Um, pick up the phone, please. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it there directly from former NFL player, Mike Gibson. And look, ladies and gentlemen, you do not have to be a former NFL player to get a hold of Mike Gibson. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you need help, if you're dealing with mental health issues, you, you think you have no road to turn to, maybe you're dealing with substance abuse. Maybe you're dealing with prescription substance mm -hmm. abuse or even illegal substance abuse reach out to Mike right right here, right now, 
you have an opportunity to get out of, as Mike said, get out of the rut that you are in. Sometimes you're taken to the lowest of the low, but we, Mike and I both know that when you look up, there is a higher power that has got his hand reached out to you to lift you up out of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Lord provides as much help. He provides all help when mm -hmm. we, when we call upon him. And I know Mike's done that. Mike has been sober for five years. That is a testimony. Again, like I said in the very beginning, he's been to hell and back, but he has now become the helping hand to so many of you that need help. So if you need an addiction counselor, you need you know, resources to know where to go in your area, reach out to Mike and also reach out to the treatment center that we have up on the screen that you can contact. They'll know what resources you can tap into where you live. Help is right next to you right now. Don't hold it in. Reach out for the help because there's another helping hand ready to reach out to you. Mike, thank you so much for coming on to the program today and uh, blessing us with your testimony, your presence, as well as excellent advice. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bond, for having me. All right, Mike Gibson, former NFL player. And ladies and gentlemen, we know the playoffs are upon us. But hey, stick around because I'll be right back with more.